0: This is Democracy Now. The international community should understand that finally high-level Mexican government officials are being held responsible for their involvement in the disappearance of this 43 students, for uh, fabricating evidence, for inventing uh, investigations, and also for doing everything in their power to prevent the students from being found. Mexico's former
1: attorney general has been arrested. Dozens of soldiers and officers face charges related to the disappearance of 43 students in Ayotzinapa, Mexico, eight years ago. The charges come just days after a state truth commission said the disappearances are a crime of the state. We'll go to Mexico City for the latest, then to the political crisis in Pakistan, where former Prime Minister Imran Khan is facing anti-terrorism charges as TV stations are barred from airing his speeches live.
0: I had called to take legal action against them, the police officers and judicial magistrate, and the government registered a terrorism case against me. In the first place, they do the wrong thing. When we say we will take legal action, they register a case against me and take out an arrest warrant against me. What does this show? There is no rule of law in our country.
1: We'll speak to Pakistani-British historian and writer Tarek Ali about the charges against Imran Khan, as well as the devastating floods in Pakistan, which have killed nearly 800 people over the past two months. Plus, we'll look at today's primaries in New York where redrawn congressional districts have led to heated battles within the leadership of the Democratic Party. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The FBI seized more than 150 documents marked classified when it searched the residence of former President Donald Trump earlier this month. That's according to The New York Times, which reports the sheer number of top-secret documents held by Trump ignited intense concern at the Justice Department and triggered the criminal investigation that led to the August 8th raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. On Monday, Trump's lawyers filed a lawsuit in a federal court in Florida, asking a judge to appoint an independent arbiter known as a special master to review whether the documents were seized properly by the FBI. If District Judge Eileen Cannon approves the request, it could slow a federal criminal investigation into whether Trump broke the Espionage Act and the Presidential Records Act. Judge Cannon was nominated to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida in 2020 by then-President Trump. It is believed he now took more than 300 classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. Ukraine's government has issued a curfew in the capital, Kiev, and banned public events commemorating the nation's 31 years of independence from the former Soviet Union. Officials in Kiev cited the risk of Russian attacks and the mass gatherings that would normally mark Wednesday's anniversary. This comes as the U.S. State Department is warning U.S. nationals, must leave Ukraine, saying it expects Russia to step up its attacks on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure and government buildings. Ukraine said Monday some 9,000 of its troops were killed during the six months that followed Russia's invasion. Fighting continues to rage in the east, where on Monday residents of the frontline city of Toretsk struggled to find water, power, and essential supplies. <inaudible>
2: The
3: situation is tense and very hard. Very hard. They shell us every day. There is no water, no gas. There's electricity in the city center only, unless it's turned off.
1: In Moscow, officials are blaming Ukrainian special forces for the weekend assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of a close ally of President Vladimir Putin. Russia's FSB Security Service said Monday the bombing was carried out by a Ukrainian woman who arrived in Russia last month and fled to Estonia after the blast. Ukraine's denied any involvement. Meanwhile, officials in Estonia, a former Soviet republic-turned-NATO member, Deny their harboring Daria Dugan as assassin. The United States has launched joint military exercises in South Korea in a massive show of force against North Korea. The exercises are the largest such war games in at least five years, involving tanks, naval vessels, warplanes and potentially tens of thousands of troops. This follows a series of North Korean missile tests earlier this year and comes amidst U.S. intelligence claims that Pyongyang is preparing its first nuclear weapons test since September 2017. Iran says the Biden administration's not responded to its proposal to restore the landmark 2015 nuclear agreement, which former President Trump unilaterally withdrew the U.S. from in 2018. A week ago, Iran submitted its response to what European negotiators called their final text of an agreement that would once again see Tehran agree to stop enriching uranium in exchange for sanctions relief. On Monday, an Iranian foreign ministry spokesperson accused the U.S. of procrastination after it failed to respond to either the Iranian or the European Union proposals. This comes after Axios reported over the weekend that the Biden administration is seeking to reassure Israel that it has not agreed to new concessions with Iran and a nuclear deal is not imminent. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Ned Price denied the U.S. is delaying negotiations with Iran.
4: It is true, and and you all in this room know this, uh, has at times languished, uh, and it has languished at times for months and months uh, because of the action, or uh, oftentimes was the case, inaction uh, from Iran. Uh, The notion that we have delayed this negotiation in any way uh, is just not true.
1: In Haiti, thousands of people continue to take to the streets, demanding the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry and protesting worsening gang violence, political instability, poverty and shortages of food, water and gas. On Monday, protesters set up barricades in the capital Port-au-Prince as they chanted, If Ariel doesn't leave, we're going to die. This comes as the Biden administration still mass-deporting Haitian asylum seekers, including young children, back to Haiti. In related news, immigrant rights advocates are demanding justice for Patrick Jolney, a 38-year-old man from Haiti, who says he was kidnapped and held for ransom after the Biden administration deported him back to Haiti in June. Jolney had been fighting his deportation for three years, as he had no memory of Haiti and doesn't speak Haitian Creole. Jolney says Haitian security forces imprisoned him without explanation the day he arrived on a deportation flight. Since then, officers have repeatedly contacted his wife, demanding thousands of dollars in exchange for his release. Jolney spoke about the torturous conditions he's faced in a video taken inside the Port-au-Prince prison and shared by his family and friends. Good afternoon. I'm Patrick Jooney. I'm being held for ransom in Port-au-Prince in a Haitian prison. Um, it's bad.
2: Medical conditions is bad. My ankles are swollen. My legs are swollen.
3: I've been sick since I've been here. I have no help, no assistance. My family going through it.
1: In Texas, at least one person was killed after a record-breaking storm system brought flash flooding to Dallas, Fort Worth and other parts of the region. Some parts of East Dallas received up to 15 inches of rainfall over a span of just 24 hours. Despite the deluge, Dallas remains an exceptional drought, having posted 67 consecutive days with no measurable rainfall earlier this year. In China— an unprecedented streak of hot summer days has passed the 70-day mark, becoming China's longest and most intense heat wave on record. Pfizer and BioNTech have asked the FDA to approve a new version of its COVID-19 booster vaccine that targets mutated forms of the coronavirus. Pfizer's updated shot is based on both the original virus that first emerged in 2019 as well as the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants that now account for nearly all U.S. cases. Pfizer submitted its application without completing a new clinical trial, meaning it's not clear whether the updated vaccine will provide more protection. mRNA vaccines produced by Pfizer and Moderna remain highly effective at preventing severe disease and death from COVID, but are much less effective at preventing infection and mild disease. Meanwhile, top U.S. infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci said Monday he'll retire in December after a career at the National Institutes of Health spanning more than half a century. In the 1980s, Dr. Fauci advised Ronald Reagan on the HIV-AIDS pandemic. He has since advised six other presidents on disease, including Ebola, Zika, influenza, COVID-19, and monkeypox. New York's health department has confirmed the state's first case of monkeypox in a person under the age of 18. The reported case came from—came as New York health officials announced plans to administer one-fifth doses of monkeypox vaccine in order to stretch supplies. On Monday, New York Governor Kathy Hochul called on the Biden administration to accelerate vaccine shipments to New York City, where over 90 percent of U.S. cases have been identified. They're dealing with severe supply chain shortages as well. Uh, They're not unnecessarily withholding this. They have an allocation. They'd like it to be more. But we're continuing to press, first in line, my hand is out, saying, what more evidence do you need than the number of cases that we're seeing right here in New York, especially right here in New York City? On Monday, Wyoming's Department of Health said it had confirmed its first-ever case of monkeypox, meaning the virus has now been detected in all 50 U.S. states. The U.S. has recorded over 15,000 cases, by far the highest toll in the world. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom has vetoed a bill that would have allowed Oakland, San Francisco and Los Angeles to establish safe drug consumption and injection sites, aimed at reducing the number of overdose deaths. Newsom claimed the sites would have brought a world of unintended consequences. But advocates have long said those facilities save lives and connect people to medical resources, including treatment for drug dependency. And a conservative dark money group that's pushed a far-right agenda in the U.S. judiciary received a record $1.6 billion in funding last year from an obscure Republican donor, the largest known donation to a political advocacy group in U.S. history. That's according to The New York Times, as well as a joint investigation by ProPublica and The Lever. The donor is Barry Side, a 90 year old conservative industrialist from Chicago. Over the past two years, Side funneled hundreds of millions of dollars through secretive transactions to a nonprofit led by Leonard Leo, the co chair of the far right Federalist Society, who's known as Donald Trump's Supreme Court whisperer. Leonard Leo has been instrumental in the rollback of federal voting rights and reproductive rights. Leo also directly helped select judges to be nominated to the Supreme Court, including Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, and organized massive media campaigns to see them confirmed. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan.
2: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
1: Well, Mexico's former attorney general has been arrested, and dozens of soldiers and police officers face charges related to the disappearance of 43 students at the Rural College for Teachers in Ayotzinapa eight years ago. Mario Caram, who served as Mexico's attorney general from twenty twelve to fifteen, was arrested on Friday a day after a truth commission formed by President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador said the student's disappearance was a crime of the state. Mexican authorities also issued over eighty other arrest warrants. Those facing charges include twenty military commanders and troops who were from battalions in the city of Iguala. Charges have also been filed against local officials, police officers and members of the drug cartel Guerreros Unidos. On Monday, the Mexican president, López Obrador, described the disappearance of the 43 students as shameful and said the truth must be exposed. And I want to ask
4: you, I know you already did, but I would like to ask everyone who has a chance and has access to the Internet, search for the files. It is not in vain to read everything that happened, because this is one of the most shameful, pitiful, painful events in the recent history of our country, and we have to expose it so that it never happens again.
1: We go now to Mexico City, where we're joined by Andalusia Kaysolov. She's an independent journalist, author of the graphic novel Vivo Se los Leveran, or Taken Alive, about the, dis- the disappearance of the 43 students at the teacher's college. She's reported on the Ayotzinapa case since the students disappeared. Uh, Andalusia, welcome to Democracy Now! Start off by talking about what happened— eight years ago, and why this is such a historic moment in Mexico, with the arrest of the former attorney general and so many others.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, this is one of the most horrible crimes that has happened in Mexican history. On September 26, 2014, a group of students from the Ayotzinapa teacher's school in Guerrero, Mexico, were attacked. Uh, by police and members of organized crime in the city of Iguala, Guerrero. And from that moment, it was unclear what happened to 43 of these students. Six people were murdered that night, um, including one person, Julio Cesar, who was found with his face ripped off on an, an abandoned road. And since then, 43 of these students, there has been no trace of them, and their parents have marched all over the country and even the world looking for their sons, and the government uh, at that time uh, tried to close the case in November of the same year with what was known as the historical truth, saying that all 43 students were taken to a nearby garbage dump in the town of. Cocula, where they were killed and incinerated, and that there was no trace of them. Uh, This was fabricated by the attorney general at the time, Jesus Murillo Caram, um, and that is why now, eight years later, he has been detained um, for this fabrication of uh, the case and the historical truth, and for not investigating the disappearance of these students.
2: Uh, Andalusia. When when uh, Lopez Obrador was running for president, he vowed one of his campaign pledges was to get to the bottom of what had happened. in uh, How do you feel uh, that uh, he has fulfilled his his pledge until now, or, or do we still have to wait, given the weaknesses of the Mexican judicial system for our actual convictions and sentences here?
0: Yes, the president, uh, López Obrador, has promised to the families that he would get to the bottom of this, and he really had a change in attitude uh, towards them. Uh, The former president, Peña Nieto, always always told them that they should just get over it, um, that their sons were dead and they they just needed to move on. So he has said that he will investigate it. Uh, They have invested tons of resources and time over the past three years with this Truth and Justice Commission to get to the bottom of it, but there's still a lot of questions remaining. Uh, there are uh, evidence is supposedly based on very few testimonies uh, saying that there are no longer any indications that the, the students are alive. Uh, but both the independent group of experts who have been investigating this case for the past eight years, as well as the families and human rights organizations say they still don't believe there's enough evidence to just say that all the students were murdered that night. Um, and also, uh, while Jesus Mario Caram has been apprehended, there are other key players who have not. Tomás Serón, who was the head of the criminal investigation, is in Israel being protected by the government of Israel, and Mexico has tried to extradite him. Uh, and it is, seems that without him, they may never know, may never know what happened, as well as last year, uh, the head of the army, uh, the General Salvador Cienfuegos, he was arrested in the United States and then, uh, was accused of being involved in drug trafficking, was brought back to Mexico, and then he was not investigated in Mexico. So here with this investigation, if the army is being investigated, many are questioning, why is the head of the army not being investigated? And also, why is, who was the president at the time, Peña Nieto, not being investigated?
2: And in terms of the significance of a a former Mexican attorney general uh, from, the, from the PRI party, uh, Uh, that uh, uh, was formerly in power, the significance of some such a high ranking person actually being arrested uh, in your in your view?
0: Yes, this is historic that the Attorney General has been arrested. Uh impunity is what reigns in Mexico. Uh that is why there are so many violations of human rights. Um and uh ironically, the students were actually getting ready in at that point in eight years ago to go honor a massacre from nineteen sixty eight of students that has never been investigated. So that massacre was never investigated and to the date. We don't know if a dozen people were murdered or a few hundred people were murdered. But we do know that, hopefully, with this crime, that they have arrested a high-level official, that there will be more hope, that, that there will be justice, and uh, we will finally know what happened to these 43 students.
1: And this is Mexico's human rights population and migration subsecretary Alejandra Encinas at a news conference last week in Mexico City, releasing the most recent findings from the Commission of Truth on the Anotzinapa case. The
2: collusion and participation of authorities from different government levels, with local policemen from Igala, Kokula, Ozuko, and Tepecocurco, has been fully confirmed, and of course with the Guerreros Unidos crime organization to carry out the disappearance of the youngsters. There is no indication the students are alive. On the contrary, all the testimonies and evidence prove they were cunningly killed and disappeared.
1: So, Andalusia, if you can talk about why it's believed these 43 young male students at a teacher's college, what happened at that time? Why they were disappeared. I want to go back to two relatives of the missing students who joined us in our Democracy Now! studio before COVID in 2015. We asked Antonio Tizapa if he thought his son Jorge Antonio Tizapa Legadeno was still alive. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Like the rest of the parents, we are sure that they are alive.
2: Independently,
1: that
2: what others say,
1: that is completely false. We know that they are alive. We know that they are holding
2: them alive because they are being detained. we don't
1: know the no reason. We do not know the reason. What has the Mexican government yeah. told the families? Why don't you believe it? Porque because si una encue- el gobierno dice the government says que esto
2: that this
1: un caso is, a case,
2: is a closed case.
1: Pero no hay
2: However, there is no
1: evidence,
2: there is no evidence que
1: nos digan lo que that dice. show us that lo que pasó con ellos.
2: prove what the, the government says happened no to them. Pruebas. And Nosotros while there is no proof,
1: estamos al de que ellos están vivos. We maintain that they are alive 100 percent. So that's Antonio Tezapa, uh, talking about his son Jorge Antonio Tezapa-Legadeño, speaking to me and Juan uh, back, oh, seven years ago, believing that his son was alive. So many of these parents still believe that. But—so talk about that and the theory of what happened and how high up it went.
0: Um, yes, many, the parents have been searching for their sons for the past eight years with the hope that they are still alive because they have no evidence that they were murdered. Um, and so it's uh, very difficult for anyone to accept that a loved one is dead without the proof. You know, so that is why, especially in Mexico, where there's a long history of disappearance and that sometimes people have turned up years later after being disappeared. Um, so that is also because uh, they have been repeatedly lied to, as we have seen with this historical truth and many other parts of the government investigation. That is why the parents have still had this hope that their sons may be alive. There have been uh, three uh, remains of students that have been identified and confirmed by external to the Mexican government uh, forensic experts. Um, and so it is lead these three students where there's just a small bone fragment that someone just has a, a bone of their son's uh, foot that the family members have told me, how am I going to believe my son's done if it uh, is dead, if all I have is this bone? Um, but uh, as far as how far up this will go, um, as I mentioned, uh, there are high level officials that are being investigated but still not the highest-level officials, as in uh, the head of the army. And it's important to mention that uh, López Obrador, while he has had a very different strategy towards the family members and uh, in in investigating this case and investing more more resources, he still is very protective of the army, did not want Cienfuegos to be investigated, um, and has repeatedly defended the army, even though that night there was actually uh, one student who was a soldier who had infiltrated the school and was communicating communicating uh, with the local battalion the entire night, until he was disappeared. And then the army did not actually search for him, and he has still disappeared until this moment.
1: But the theory of why they were killed uh, or disappeared, why were these young students at a rural teacher's college such a threat?
0: Yes, uh, there are very there are various theories about why they were attacked. Um, they have repeatedly suffered from attacks and repression, and the government has wanted to close down their school, which is a rural school uh, for. Uh, poor students and many indigenous students that have no other access to education in Mexico, um, and they are of a leftist thinking. But uh, there's also a theory that really focuses on drug trafficking. And uh, Guerrero is one of the top producers of poppy for heroin production in the entire world. And it is believed that one of the buses that they had taken that night had a secret compartment, either filled with heroin or filled with heroin money, Um, and that all of the force that was used against them and the attacks was because the police and military and members of the organized crime groups were protecting that shipment and didn't want to lose their millions of dollars if that bus got out of Iguala.
2: And, Andalusia, what does this uh, mean for the—you mentioned before there's a history of disappearances. About 100,000 people have disappeared in Mexico uh, in, in recent years. What does this uh, mean, this case, in terms of potentially solving other disappearance cases?
0: Yes, when the students were went missing uh, back in 2014, uh, it— inspired people in that local city of Iguala to go and look in the hillsides surrounding the town, in the rivers, and start digging. And they literally found hundreds of human remains. Um, And since the government in the past three years have been uh, searching, they have also found over 1,000 human remains. So, this means that Mexico really is a clandestine grave, where 100,000 people have gone missing. Their disappearances have not been investigated. Uh, Often, when family members go to uh, their local police, especially when they're women, they say, oh, my daughter is missing. They say, oh, she just ran off with her boyfriend, and they don't actually investigate. Um, and so what happened with the Ayutinapa case was that these parents stood up and did not accept the government lies and insisted that they search for them. They inspired... Uh, hundreds or even thousands of other people who had family members or were disappeared to go and look for them. And so now there's collectives all over the country that are combing the hillsides looking for their loved ones. It's really a horrible situation. But there are now more uh, investigations of disappearances. But really what we see also with this case is that... uh, The first 24 or 48 hours are often the most important uh, to know how to find someone that's disappeared. Uh, This investigation that just came out this week showed that a few of the students were kept alive according to them, for a few days. Um, so, if the government had actually properly looked for them, they could have found them alive. But that did not happen. So, hopefully, this case will uh, help change this horrible situation where so many people are disappeared in Mexico. But unfortunately, uh, Mexico is seeing really high levels of violence right now. Uh, just yesterday, a journalist was murdered uh, in the city of Chilpancingo, right near where the students had uh, been. Uh, Disappeared from, and the last column that he had written was about the report and about government complicity. So there's not much hope that the situation will change, but at least it is a positive development uh, that high level officials are being held accountable and uh, that they are recognizing and charging these officials with the crime of disappearance, which was a crime that they did not charge people with before.
1: And Lucia Soloff, we want to thank you for being with us, independent journalist, author of the graphic novel. Novel, Taken Alive. She's reported on the Ayotzinapa case since the 43 students disappeared, speaking to us from Mexico City. Next up, the political crisis in Pakistan, where the former prime minister, Imran Khan, is facing new anti-terrorism charges as television stations are barred from airing his speeches live. We'll speak with the author and historian, Tariq Ali. Stay with us.
3: La masa, la masacre en Platelol con un cabre Nunca habremos de olvidar La masa, la masacre en Platelol con un cabre Nunca habremos de olvidar ¿Dónde es tú? ¿Dónde estudiantes le dieron su vida? Su vida, la libertad ¿Dónde es tú? ¿Dónde estudiantes le dieron su vida? Subida a la libertad, que me voy, 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 que me voy pa'l paredón, ya pare, ya parece que la llevo como espí, como espina en el talón, ya pare, ya parece que la llevo como espí, como espina en el talón.
1: Mexican musician Oscar Chavez. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at the political crisis in Pakistan, where the former prime minister Imran Khan has been charged under Pakistan's anti-terrorism act. It's the latest escalation between the Pakistani state and Khan, who remains very popular following his ouster from, aug- um, from office in April in what he described as a form of a U.S.-backed regime change. Khan has continued to hold major rallies across Pakistan, but over the weekend, Pakistani authorities banned. TV stations from broadcasting his speeches live. Then Monday, police filed anti-terrorism charges against him, after he gave a speech accusing police officers of torturing one of his close aides, who was jailed on sedition charges. Soon after the charges were announced, hundreds of Khan's supporters gathered outside his home to prevent police from arresting him. Later Monday, Khan responded to the charges in a speech in Islamabad.
0: I had called to take legal action against them, the police officers and judicial magistrate, and the government registered a terrorism case against me. In the first place, they do the wrong thing. When we say we will take legal action, they register a case against me and take out an arrest warrant against me. What does this show? There is no rule of law in our country.
1: So, we're joined now in London by Tarak Ali, the Pakistani-British historian, activist, filmmaker on the editorial committee of The New Left Review, author of many books, including Uprising in Pakistan, How to Bring Down a Dictatorship, which came out a few years ago, and Can Pakistan Survive? His latest book, Winston Churchill, his Times, his crimes, we'll talk about on another show. And we're also talking about uh, about this uh, among—in the midst of these massive floods of Pakistan. And we'll get to that in a minute talk about the significance of the terrorism charges against um, Imran Khan, who is ousted in what basically he calls U.S.-backed regime change.
3: Well, Imran had annoyed the United States. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He had said uh, when Kabul fell— He said publicly as prime minister that the Americans made a huge mess in that country, and this is the result. Uh, Then after the Ukraine war was unleashed by Putin, uh, Imran was in Moscow that day. He didn't comment on it. He was just surprised it happened during his state visit. But he refused to back sanctions against Russia, and he was criticized for that, to which he replied, India is not backing the sanctions. Why don't you criticize them? China is not backing them. The bulk of the world, uh, Third World, is not uh, uh, backing them. Why pick on me? But he had become a nuisance. Whether the United States put too much into it, we don't know. But certainly the military, which is very dominant in Pakistani politics, must have thought that to to please the United States, better get rid of him. And there's no doubt that without military support for his removal, he wouldn't have been ousted. Now, what they thought or what they assumed was that Imran would lose all popularity because his government had made many mistakes. There was talk of corruption uh, by his wife, etc., etc. Then something happened in July which shook the establishment which is that in the most populous and important province in the country, important in terms of power, um, uh, the Punjab, uh, there were 20 by-elections for parliamentary seats, and Imran won 15 of them. He could have won another two had his party been better organized. So that showed that support from him if it had evaporated, was coming back because people were just shocked uh, by the government that had replaced him. Um, and that, I think, also gave Imran a lot of hope that he could win the next uh, general elections uh, quite easily. And he went on a grand tour of the country, <laughs> of which there were two prongs. The military has put corrupt politicians in power, and the United States has organized a regime change, and one of the biggest chants on all these demonstrations, which had hundreds of thousands of people on them, was uh, he who is a friend of the United States is a traitor, a traitor. That was the big chant in a very popular chant uh, at the time. So he no doubt built himself up again, and I think it's that event Amy, in July, of showing popular support via elections, when he isn't even in power Uh, that worried them. So they've been waging a campaign against him. Arresting him under the anti-terrorism laws is truly grotesque. He's attacked judges in the past. Uh, He was attacking some of the judicial authorities in his speech the other day. If you want to arrest him, you have, you can accuse him of contempt of court. So he can go and fight against that and we'll see who wins uh, and in which court. Uh, But instead, they've arrested him under the terrorism laws, which is a bit worrying that if the aim is to keep him out of the next elections because of the so called terrorism charges, uh that will create more havoc in the country. He's not too worried at the
2: moment. And Tarek, I, I wanted to that. ask you, given these uh given the massive uh protests that have that have erupted in support of him and uh is it your sense that even people who may have been opposed to Imran Khan are? unifying behind him against the political and military establishment of the country? Uh, after all, and, and the potential for continued disruption in a, in a country that's the fifth largest country in the world in terms of population.
3: Yeah, I think they are worried. And I think Imran made a very significant remark in his speech over the weekend. He said, don't forget Listen to the bells that are tolling in Sri Lanka, where there was a mass uprising which occupied the uh, presidential palace and resulted in the president fleeing uh, and a, a, a few changes uh, set into motion. He said, We are not going down that route, but we want new elections and we want them soon. Now, When they took part, the new government said we'd try and have elections in September, October. Now they've postponed these elections till August next year. And Juan, you have to understand that at the same time, the new government's deal with the IMF has meant huge price rises in the country. There are many people now who Cannot afford to buy the staple foods of the country. It's become too expensive. The price of gas has shot up. So for the poor who already have little electricity, it's a total trauma. And people, of course, blame the new government because this is the government that did the deal with the IMF. And the economic situation in the country is extremely precarious. And this has also boosted Imran's uh, popularity without any doubt. I mean, the talk is that were there an election to be held within the next four months, he would sweep the country.
2: And you mentioned the the role of the military in uh, Pakistani politics. What was the military's relationship to Imran before uh, this crisis Um, erupted, before his ouster uh, uh, as prime minister?
3: Well, they approved him coming to power. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it may be embarrassing both for him and them now in the present situation in the country. But there is little doubt that the military... um, was in fact behind him when he came to power. Uh, but like other politicians, he's uh, used his his power and built up a huge base for himself in the country, which was formerly restricted to the regime, the Pakhtunkhwa regime, government, elected government, uh, in the northern part of the country on the border with Afghanistan, but is now spreading. Uh, even to parts of uh, Karachi, and the Punjab now seems to be a stronghold, one of the PTI's, Imran's party's main strongholds. So the military and political establishment isn't having it uh, their way. I mean, they thought they could create a new stability with the Sharif brothers, now, what is interesting, and hasn't been reported, is that prior to Shehbaz Sharif, you know, eagerly stepping into Imran's shoes, there was a rift, I'm told, between the two brothers, his older brother, Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, who's in Britain, supposedly ill because he was released from a prison on corruption charges, to go for an operation in Britain. He's been here for some years. Uh, he was opposed to Shehbaz coming to taking office. He said, better to go for an immediate general election while Imran is unpopular, and we might win that, and then we'll have years ahead. But his brother... Outvoted him or whatever, however, they settled these arguments and said, No, no, we need a new government now. The situation is bad. Well, this is the result.
1: I also wanted to ask you about the horrendous flooding uh, taking place in Pakistan, Tarek, over the last two months. Abnormally <clears throat> heavy monsoon rains have led to the deaths of about 800 people. The flood's damaging over 60,000 homes. Here are some of the voices of survivors of the floods.
2: We are very worried. Our elders are saying they
1: have not seen such rains and floods in the past 30 to 35 years. This is the first time we have seen such heavy rains. Now we are concerned that God forbid, this type of heavy rain may continue in the future because the weather pattern is changing. So we are now really nervous about this. We are really worried.
2: The
4: rain destroyed my house. My livestock were all lost. My fields devastated. Only. Our our lives were saved. Nothing else is left. Thank God. He saved the lives of my children. Now we are at Allah's mercy.
3: My property, my
2: house, everything was flooded. So we took shelter on the roof of a government school for three days and three nights. Around 200 people with kids. We sat on the roof for three days. When the water receded a little, we dragged the kids out of the mud and walked for two days until we arrived at a safe place.
1: So it may be well. Then, close to a thousand people are dead. Tens of thousands displaced. The significance of this climate change in Pakistan and how it's affecting the politics of the country.
3: It's affecting politics all over the world, uh, Amy. In Pakistan, of course, isn't uh, can't be excluded, nor is it uh, exceptional. But what makes Pakistan? to a certain extent different, is that floods on this scale, it's true what the person said, that um, they have not been seen before certainly not in living memory, there have been floods and regularly, but not on this scale. I mean, even the city of Karachi, which is the largest industrial city in the country, which has barely seen floods uh, in the past, there were half the city was uh, under uh, water, including areas where middle and upper middle class people live. So it's been a huge shock. The question is this, and this is a question which comes up whenever there's an earthquake, a flood, a natural disaster. Why has Pakistan, successive governments, military and civilian, not been able to construct a social infrastructure, a safety net for ordinary people. It's fine for the rich and the well-off. They can escape, they can leave the country, they can go to hospital, they have enough food. But for the bulk of the country, this is not the case. And this just highlights the social crisis that has been eating away at Pakistan, and that has now been further devastated by the IMF demands. Uh, which are wrecking the country. I mean, there is malnutrition in parts of the country. The floods, uh, the floods wrecked Balochistan, one of the poorest parts of of the country, in a province that has been ignored for many, many decades by successive governments. So, you know, we always talk and get worked up about particular natural disasters or climate change disasters, but. The government should set up a planning commission to actually plan to build a social structure, social infrastructure for the country. This doesn't just apply to Pakistan, of course. Many other countries should do the same.
1: But uh, in Pakistan, the situation is particularly desolate because
3: the rich don't care. They just don't care.
1: Tariq before we go, we have 30 seconds. I wanted to ask you about the situation of Julian Assange. We just did a segment on the um, <coughs> Julian Assange lawyers and journalists um, suing the CIA and Mike Pompeo personally, um, the former CIA director, um, for working with uh, com- a Spanish company in bugging the embassy, videoing, audioing, taking a visitors' computers and phones, downloading them, interfering with client-attorney um, uh, privilege. Could this stop the extradition of Julian Assange, who faces espionage charges in the United States?
3: Well, it should, Amy. That's the first answer, because this has been a political case from the beginning. The fact that senior officials discussed whether to kill Assange or not, and that's the country to which the British government and judiciary acting in collusion, are sending him back, claiming this isn't a political trial, this isn't a political victimization. It's deeply shocking. Well, I hope that this trial brings uh, some more fact forward and some action is taken, because this extradition really should be stopped. We're all trying. But the politicians by and large, and mainly of both parties, and the Australian new prime minister in the election campaign pledged he'd do something. The minute he becomes prime minister, uh, he just completely caves into the United States. Uh, Barely a surprise. But in the meantime, Julian's health is bad. We're extremely worried about how he's been treated in prison. He shouldn't be in prison even if he is uh, going to be extradited. So I I, I hope for the best, but fear the worst, because one shouldn't have any illusions about the English judiciary.
1: Tariq Ali, historian, activist, filmmaker, author of Uprising in Pakistan, How to Bring Down a Dictatorship, his latest book, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Next up, we'll look at today's primaries in New York. Yesterday, we looked at Florida, where redrawn congressional districts have led to heated battles within the Democratic Party leadership. Back in 30 seconds gana yaari gaddari ishq ke naam fakirani by a group of musicians from the Pakistani province of Balochistan, including Abdul Wahab whose home was recently destroyed by record-heavy rains in his village. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Today, Florida, Oklahoma, New York have primary elections. We're focusing on New York, where the primary comes after a court-appointed special master drew a new congressional map after New York's top court rejected a previous new map it said was illegally gerrymandered to favor Democrats. One closely watched race is in the redrawn Congressional District Ten in New York City, which still leans heavily Democrat. The race crowded with several progressives running, including Congressmember Mondair Jones, who's endorsed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, New York Assemblymember Eulene New, and New York City Councilwoman Carlina Rivera, also running as Dan Goldman, who served as a federal prosecutor in former President Trump's first impeachment trial. He opposes court reform, student debt Cancellation and Medicare for All, and has a spotty record on ab- support for abortion rights. His largely self-funded race, $4 million of his own fortune, as heir to the Levi Strauss fortune. Well, The New York Times drew scrutiny when it endorsed Dan Goldman without noting it was making an exception to its usual disdain for self-funded candidates, or that the publisher of The Times, A.G. Salzberger, lives in New York 10, has family ties to the Goldmans, and did not accuse himself from the endorsement process. This prompted a rare news conference last week, where rival progressive candidates Yulene New and Mondaire Jones joined together to speak out against Dan Goldman.
2: CONSERVATIVE DEMOCRAT DAN GOLDMAN CANNOT BE ALLOWED TO PURCHASE THIS CONGRESSIONAL SEAT.
4: Certainly not in one of the most progressive congressional districts in the country.
0: We can't let a candidate so out of step with this district's values buy themselves a congressional seat. This
1: all comes as the former longtime Congress member for District 10, um, Jerry Nadler, is now running against longtime incumbent Carolyn Maloney in Congressional District 12. Um, these are two leaders of the Democratic Party in Congress. For more, we're joined by Alex Salmon, staff writer for The American Prospect, closely following all of this. Alex, uh, you wrote a piece, New York Times Faces Backlash Over Dan Goldman Endorsement Debacle, and you're latest could Yuli new run on the working family party line talk about the significance of this New York primary nationally
4: yeah it's a, it's a really interesting primary it's obviously hotly contested there are legitimately six candidates who are still uh, within an arms race of, of winning this uh, contest and it's one of the most progressive districts in the country right so New York ten I think, uh, with its latest boundaries is, is I think D plus 51. So we're talking about one of the bluest districts in the country. And, um, it's one that's, you know, rarely comes up for grabs. It, it is totally up for grabs right now and could go a number of different ways. Um, but looks like it may go to the most conservative candidate in the field, which is Dan Goldman, which is something that obviously is, has raised a lot of eyebrows and is getting a lot of national attention.
2: And uh, I want to ask you in terms of the the uh, the race between uh, Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, uh, the they both claim to be progressives. But what's your sense of how of their records and uh, especially what will happen in a race where in the middle of August uh, very few people are likely to vote? Right. So, obviously, the New York electoral process has
4: has been just one long debacle, and the fact that it ends with a a primary in in late August when turnout is going to be at an absolute rock-bottom level is you know, not a very successful show, of the democratic process. But uh, the New York 12 race is interesting, right? Yeah. Jerry Nadler has been in Congress for almost 30 years. Carolyn Maloney has been in Congress for almost 30 years. Very rare to have two seriously senior Democrats up against each other like this. And I think both, right, we both would like to, to be seen as the progressive in the race. I think the reality is, if you look closely at their records, you'll see that uh, Jerry Nadler is someone who, who really does have, have a long track record of championing championing progressive policies, of building the progressive base in New York City. Uh, and Carolyn Maloney doesn't really have that. She's someone who who voted against the Iran deal, um, and and has kind of a a a checkered record on some of these uh progressive priorities. And I think most importantly actually for for this race, um Nagler is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee and has done some really excellent work on um, antitrust legislation and taking on big tech and and uh forwarding some of these um, anti-monopoly policies that are, are a high priority for the party at this moment. And Carolyn Maloney is the head of the House Oversight Committee, which is, has been a really notoriously weak committee in Congress, and it's the one that was tasked with... Uh, obtaining uh, President Trump's tax returns, and, and there's a reason we still don't have those, uh, or at least Congress hasn't gotten a hold of them, and that's because that committee is not very effective. And so, I think if you're comparing the two of them, you'd say that Nadler has the record to kind of back up his claim, which is that he's the he's the New York progressive with, with the history and the track record, um, and, you know, should continue to be the, the uh, person that New York sends to, to Congress from this district.
2: There's also another race uh, in the 17th congressional district that pits a uh, centrist democrat Sean Patrick Maloney against a much more progressive state uh, state senator Alessandro Biaggi. Can you talk about that race and how it's shaping up?
4: Yeah, this is another race. It's another, you know, open seat thrown into chaos by uh, redistricting. Um Maloney's the DCCC chair. He's one of the more conservative members um, of the Democratic delegation in Congress, certainly one of the most conservative uh, members of the New York delegation. Um, and, you know, he has a high, obviously, a leadership position in that he runs DCCC. But he's got a pretty uh, mixed record on, on climate and, and the environment. He, he was, you know, closely involved with a, with a fossil fuel plant up in his district that a number of activists were, you know, strongly against, and that actually New York State uh decided was you know uh in violation of environmental rules in the state. And he has a he has a, a progressive challenger in Alessandro Biagi. Um uh Maloney's backed by um, the Democratic Majority for Israel PAC, which is one of the huge money super PACs that's affiliated with APAC that has really taken over the Democratic primary process, especially in this cycle. They've spent uh, millions of dollars in these races to, um, you know, protect more conservative candidates and, and ensure that they get elected again. Uh, is obviously a progressive, has a, has a track record. On progressive issues, but is facing a serious uphill battle because Maloney has so much more money. um, Obviously, has the uh, the incumbency of of having you know being a current member in Congress and having a leadership position. And so, it's a battle to be closely watched. Again, it's one I think progressives would really really like to win. Um, Maloney made a lot of enemies also by choosing to run in in 17 when he could have run in 18, uh, where he currently is. Uh, which would have been slightly more difficult. There's uh, slightly more Republicans in 18, but he chose to take the easier route by running in 17, and he bumped him on Derek Jones, who's a current congressman out of 17, where he currently resides, and into ten, so set off this this chaotic race, and um and yeah, that, that's also a race you know will be closely watched, but is is a little bit of a long shot at this point, I think, for Biagi.
1: So you co-authored this piece, um, Alex. Um, New York Times faces backlash over Dan Goldman endorsement debacle. Um, New York Times endorsing three white men in a very diverse primary race. Um, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney and Jerry Nadler and Dan Goldman. Um, can you talk about Dan Goldman um, and the person right up against him, uh, Mondaire Jones, the significance of uh Eileen new, as well—the significance of The Times not revealing the close ties of the publisher to the Goldman family?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's, there are a lot of irregularities actually in this endorsement, and, and in the header, you'll if you read the endorsement, it says that these three races could decide whether Demo- Democrats or Republicans hold the House. Um, starting next year. And, and that, that's just not true. The, all three races are safe Democratic races, and there's really no way the Republicans are going to win any of those three seats. So it kind of steps off on this kind of, you know, this just inaccurate description of, of the political climate in New York and, and these elections. And, and the race in particular in 10 is fascinating because, right, the, uh, the endorsement if you read it, you know speaks glowingly of Mondaire Jones. If you read it without knowing who they were going to endorse, you would assume, at the very least, that Jones would be uh, rece- receiving a co-endorsement. Um, but it ends up, you know, endorsing. They end up endorsing Goldman, and, and of the six candidates that I mentioned, Goldman's the only one who isn't isn't and hasn't uh, held elected office. Uh he's you know he's the white man in the race. This is a this is a majority-minority district, it's New York City's most diverse. And they don't even mention two of the four, you know, really the the, the of the front runners, even of that six, Euline New and uh Carlina Rivera don't even get mentioned in 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 the text of the endorsement. So those those things are, you know, uh, very peculiar. And then to add on top of that, you know, the the, the fact that the the publisher didn't disclose his close ties to the Solzberger family and, and the Goldman family have ties going back decades. That's not disclosed. He didn't recuse himself from uh, the endorsement process. And, um, and you know, the, the, the fact that the Times editorial board ultimately, uh, in the statement that we were given, said that, you know, the editorial board answers to the public. We have to leave and, and it and there, Alex
1: Salmon, I want to thank you so much at. for being with us. We'll link to your coverage at American Prospect. Very happy birthday to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González.